nation, and uh, one of the reasons why we are blessed is because of a, a phenomenon known as the Protestant work ethic. You've heard of the Protestant work ethic, sometimes called the, the Puritan work ethic. I don't know if you realize this, but before the days of the Protestant Reformation, the, the Roman Catholic Church had separated work into two different categories. There was the, the sacred, which was a, a higher calling, and then there was a secular, which was the, um, a lower calling. And uh, really what, what happened in, in doing so is that it took the, um, the secular work and simply really reduced the common people and the common work that they do to a secondary grade of, of piety which actually had the result of disheartening typical laborers, which led then to a natural laziness among the people and all that would follow. Uh, Less prosperity, less blessing, more grumbling, more difficulties. But through the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, this dichotomy was slowly eliminated. And and Martin Luther, probably of anybody, played the, the key role in this. In fact, uh, Leland Riken said in his book, Worldly Saints, it was Martin Luther more than anyone else who overthrew the notion that clergymen, monks, and nuns were engaged in holier work than the housewife and shopkeeper. And uh, Luther's argument was, no, that it is the the shopkeeper and the, the housekeeper and the homemaker and the carpenter who do every bit work as unto the Lord as does the clergy. John Calvin said this, it's an error that those who flee worldly affairs and engage in contemplation are leading an angelic life. We know that men were created to busy themselves with labor and that no sacrifice is more pleasing to God than when each one attends to his calling and studies to live well for the common good. And the rest of the Protestant world followed suit. And it put a dignity back into work and it gave people a reason to work hard. Every sort of work was considered noble, providing, of course, it wasn't sinful. And and we as America have received the benefits of much of the blessing that have come upon those nations who embrace this ethic of work. Because, you know, we are, as creatures made by God, we've been made to work. It's not good for man to be idle. It's good for man to work. When God put man in the garden, He put him to work, to tend for the garden, to serve the garden, to help it. Even Benjamin Franklin, the deist, noticed the blessings upon those who work. In fact, his sayings are well known. I think you know this, a penny saved is a penny earned, right? That's not the Bible, that is Benjamin Franklin. A a stitch in time saves nine, right? Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and and wise, right? We know these things of how profitable it is to work hard. In his autobiography, Benjamin Franklin told of the story of when he was commissioned to, to, to oversee the operations of a building of a military fort. I think it was up north to protect against the, the French from uh, Canada who might come down to attack America. And he spoke of the difference between the days in which the laborers were able to work versus the days that it rained. Listen to his words. He says, When men are employed, they are best contented. For on the days they worked, they were good-natured and cheerful, and with a consciousness of having done a good day work, they spent the evening jollily. It's a good word for us, jollily. But on our idle days, they were mutinous and quarrelsome, 
finding fault with their pork and with their bread and continual ill humor they were in, which put me in mind of a sea captain who rule it, who, whose rule it was to keep his men constantly at work. When his mate once told him that they'd done everything and there's nothing further to employ about them, oh, says he, make them scour the anchor. Just keep them busy. Because when we're busy and we work hard, it is to our benefit. This morning, we come to a text that speaks about work. I've entitled my message this morning, Working for the Lord. And as believers in Christ, we are called to work hard and to labor hard in our work as unto the Lord. That's what this text talks about. I want to begin reading by catching the context here. Chapter 3, verse 18 of Colossians. It says, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. We have here three sets of commands, right? The first set is in 18 and 19. It deals with the marriage relationship. Wives are called to submit to their husbands, and husbands are called to love their wives, right? The next set comes in 20 and 21. It deals with relationships in the home, with parents and children. Children are called to obey their parents, and fathers are called to encourage their children, not to exasperate them. And the final set of instructions come in verses 22 through, unfortunately, we have a a bad chapter break here, but through chapter 4, verse 1. And these deal with the master-slave relationship. And it all boils down to this. Slaves are called to obey their masters, and masters are called to treat their slaves justly and fairly. Now, when, the reason I wanted to read this entire passage for you this morning is that you might, you might see an oddity here. I'm not sure if you exactly saw the oddity, but I know that it is there. And, and the oddity is the, the inordinate amount of space that Paul devotes to instructing slaves in how it is they ought to live. I mean, I mean look at there. The wives, how many verses do they get in this, in this uh, passage? How many verses? They get one. And husbands, how many verses do they get? One. And uh, children, how many verses do they get? One. And parents, how many do they get? One. And masters, how many do they get? And uh, slaves, how many do they get? You're a little slower, okay? Uh, They get four verses on that. And that should, should strike you. I counted up the words in the Greek text. And when you count the number of words given to wives and husbands and children and fathers and masters, they were given 60 words in the Greek text. And slaves are given 56, almost as many as all of the others combined. And that ought to get your attention. Whenever you study the Bible, you should always ask yourselves questions like, what would be missing if this verse was out? What would be missing if this verse was in? Why, why is this so long and why is this so short? Because there's a reason why in the Scriptures 
The Bible gives us four perspectives on the life of Christ. There's a reason for that. There's a reason why much of the New Testament starts with the stories of Christ. There's a reason why Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are so long, comprising 20% of the Old Testament, when you could summarize all their message up with one word, repent. That's all they said in various different ways. But 20% of the Old Testament is devoted to this one message, repent. And there's a reason for that as well. There's a reason why Paul's letters dominate the New Testament teaching about Christ. And in a similar fashion, there's reason here why Paul devotes so much attention here to to slavery. And I think that it has to do with the situation in Colossae as well as the situation in the ancient world. It's been estimated at the time that Paul wrote this that a third of the population were slaves at this time. Some have even placed this estimate half the population. And there are many ways you become a slave in that day, a prisoner of war. You could be taken as slaves. Criminals were punished oftentimes by sold into slavery. If you amassed a large debt, you could give yourself into slavery to pay for that debt. If you were the son or daughter of slaves, you'd become naturally a slave. Somehow, in some way, a third of the population, or maybe half of the population, were slaves. And as Paul writes to Colossae then, what kind of setup do you think that the church in Colossae was filled with. They had many slaves in their congregation. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the majority of the people in the church in Colossae were slaves. James says, the poor of this world that are rich in faith. And the reason's really simple, right? The poor have nowhere to turn except to God. They don't have the, the things of this world to distract them. The rich, on the other hand, have the worries of the world And how easy is it for the rich to place their hope on the uncertainty of riches rather than upon Jesus Christ? With nowhere else to turn, the church has often become a refuge for the poor and needy, which was the situation of many of the slaves in Paul's day. They were poor and needy. They came into the church. And so, it makes sense for Paul to take an extra set of space to address this particular experience of those who were experiencing the, the terrible things of slavery in Colossae. But, but I think there's a, another situation which gives us reason to think of why he would devote so much here in Colossians to slavery is because there was something else going on when Paul wrote this letter. Look over at chapter 4, verse 7. Paul, when he wrote this letter, planned to give it to a man and he gave it to this man named Tychicus. And Tychicus is going to bring this letter to Colossae. That's what it says in verse 7 of all my affairs. Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. Tychicus is going to take this letter of Colossians and going to deliver it to the people at Colossae. In so doing, he was going to tell those in Colossae how everything was going with Paul, how the imprisonment was how his um, the, how the gospel and the kingdom of God was was progressing, but he was bringing along with him someone else, and with him Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who's one of your number. They both will inform you about the whole situation here. You know who Onesimus is, right? Does that name ring a bell? He was a runaway slave, and he's coming back into the Colossian church. In fact, even if you look at Onesimus, he was one of your number. He was right there among the Colossian people. He, he went out, probably 
hiding in Rome, trying to be lost in the Sea of Numbers, somehow, maybe he's a thief, maybe encountered Paul in prison, but somehow he came across the Apostle Paul and in the course of time he heard the saving message of Christ and was converted. We don't know exactly what Paul told him, but certainly he told him of the, the Creator God who reigns above. Because Onesimus coming probably from a pagan background. Didn't know much about God. Told him about the Creator God. Told him of the fallen state of man who rebelled against their Creator. And, and then Paul had the amazing privilege to tell Onesimus of the amazing love and compassion and mercy of God that sent His only begotten Son to seek and to save those who are lost. He did this by dying upon the cross. And when Jesus died upon the cross, it was more than Him dying. He was taking the punishment that our sins deserved and that by faith in Him, we can gain His righteousness as He takes our punishment upon the cross. It's a mystery we won't understand, but it's true. By faith in Christ, we can be saved throughout all eternity. And Onesimus heard this message and it was good news to him and he believed it. And he embraced it. He became a Christ follower and a child of God. Now, one of the implications about becoming a Christian is that you need to, you have a desire to, right, make things right, including taking steps to deal with past sins. You remember Zacchaeus, when he was converted, what did he do? He said, Lord, I will give away half my possessions and anybody who I have defrauded of anything, I will return it fourfold. Trying to make amends for those who he had wronged before. A rich man was able to give away half his wealth to the poor. And with Onesimus, it meant he's a runaway slave. He's a, he's a thief stealing from his master because he's not giving his master what he deserves. He is a, a liar. And he's a deceiver. He needs to go back and make that right with Philemon. Now, it's not, certainly not an easy task. To think about a runaway slave, right, coming back to uh, Philemon to face his master. So Anisimus was a smart man. He didn't return alone. He returned with his letter, which we have in our Bible called Philemon. And uh, it was his note to deliver to Philemon. And it was, it was a hope that Philemon would then hear this message of this letter and then deal with Anisimus rightly. The message of Philemon is all about forgiveness. And how it is that Philemon ought to take Onesimus back in. Because Onesimus was entirely at the mercy of the master whom he had wronged. In fact, listen to what J.B. Lightfoot said. He said, Roman law practically imposed no limits on the power of the master over a slave. The alternative of life or death rested solely with Philemon. And slaves were constantly crucified for far lighter offenses than his. A thief and a runaway... Onesimus had no claim to forgiveness. <laughs> and in fact, one of the great deterrents that masters have had to slaves running away is to strongly punish those who were caught and would lead the, the slaves into fear. And, but yet it was the hope of Onesimus they wouldn't be punished because Philemon was a believer. In fact, the church at Colossae probably met in Philemon's house because we read in, in Philemon that uh, he said, greet all those in the church that's in your house. And uh, this is a prominent deal. This is a big social issue. How is it that Philemon, how is Philemon going to receive Onesimus and how is Onesimus going to be received? And you can only imagine the, the sorts of discussion. Half the church are slaves. They're looking at the situation. Okay, Philemon is a believer and here comes another believer, but he's run away and what exactly is going to happen? 
Well, the slaves in the church would have watched and the slaves outside the church would have watched as well. And as the gospel would be put on display and as Philemon would have this opportunity to show to all the transforming power of Christ, right? One who's been forgiven of God, it is then natural that he would forgive others. In fact, you can read some of the scriptures, some of the statements that Jesus says, and it's almost mandatory, it's necessary to forgive others as God has forgiven. Right? The Lord's Prayer. Father, forgive us our sins as we have forgiven others. Right? And the wicked slave was forgiven a big debt but didn't forgive. His um, fellow slave owed a little debt. What happened to him? <laughs> Thrown, cast away, weeping and gnashing in teeth in hell because he wasn't forgiving. And so likewise here, even as, as Philemon knew the forgiveness of God, it was natural, but how is he going to receive Onesimus? And I can think about the, uh, the unbelieving slaves looking upon this and saying, why didn't Onesimus get punished as he deserved? How can Philemon restore him? And, and how can they continue to be Friends, and yet that was the case. We can assume that that's what Philemon did. That's what Paul encouraged him to do. As he did that, he put the powerful gospel on display. But as he did that, then there may have been problems easily. Other slaves of Philemon think, oh, what does he become now, lenient? Can I run away now as well? Can I usurp the authority of my master? Can I do that? It's, what about the others? Is he to forgive everybody? Is he to let everybody go free? Is he going to crack the whip? What's he going to do? Is, is he going to show partiality to Christian slaves or not? Other slaves might um, embrace the same posture and could easily lead some slaves to a feigned conversion. Oh, I'm a Christian now. right? You're going to forgive me. You're going to make it work easier for me. And... Um, it's interesting what, what Paul says. Paul then instructs the slaves how they should behave towards their masters. And his instruction teaches them to flee, flee any appearance of rebellion or laziness. He basically takes, okay, Christian slaves, here's, here's, here's your level of obedience you need to pay to your masters. You need to step it up. That's what he says in verse 22. Look, look, at, look at how high the standard comes. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. In all things. Not with external service of those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, right? This internal motivation. And whatever you do, do your work heartily, right? As from your soul, working for the Lord rather than for men, knowing from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. For you who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Now, the bottom line of these words, Paul's telling the Christian. Slaves to obey their masters by working harder than they ever worked before. And you know what? There's a reason for this. Especially Christian slaves writing to the, the church here at Colossae. There's a reason for this. Titus chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Paul says why. He says, Urge the bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything. To be well-pleasing, <clears throat> not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. So that, okay, here's a purpose why it is that uh, slaves should do this. So that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. In other words, as a, as a slave was converted to Christ, it, it, it gave him a new allegiance, which was to God, but that didn't shirk his earthly responsibility. But what it did was it increased and improved his desire to, to work for his, their masters completely with all their heart. And so adorn the gospel of God. 
that is cosmeto, to give cosmetics to the doctrine of God. Show how glorious God is by the way that it makes slaves even not argumentative, but pleasing to their masters. Not pilfering, not stealing, but showing good faith. Because it demonstrates to a watching world of the transforming power of the gospel. It makes us more responsible citizens. It makes us more responsible people. They would demonstrate how believing in Christ and following Him would actually make a better worker. Not a lazy or rebellious worker who merely wants his freedom. Paul gave the same instruction to Timothy. Listen, 1 Timothy chapter 6, 1 and 2. Let all who are under the yoke of slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. If you're under the yoke as a slave... Consider your master worthy of all honor so that the name of our God and our doctrine may not be spoken against. And let those who have believers as masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren. But let them serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. Right? And as, as Onesimus would come back and serve Philemon even in a greater way than ever before. It would do well. And, and especially for Philemon, who was a wealthy man, owned, owned a house big enough to, to uh, have the church meet there. He would really serve him because he's a believer and he would be helping out his fellow believer. And the watching world would see and, to see, and they would see then the glories of the work of the Gospel in people's hearts. And I think these reasonings were present in Paul as he wrote here in, in Colossae. Well, now I need to say a word about slavery, okay? When you think about slavery, your first thought is probably of a, a man or woman brought from Africa, brought on a, on, a, on a ship with terrible conditions, and brought over here and forced against their will to work on a cotton plantation someplace in the south, overworked in the hot sun, felled minor rations, sleeping under lock and key, constantly watched by his superiors, punished at every slight disobedience. And, and, and I tell you, if that comes in your mind, your blood ought to boil with anger. You ought to just, you ought to say, that's not right for a, a man or woman made in the image of God to be placed in that situation to be treated so poorly by other human beings. Just not right. And I praise the Lord for people like William Wilberforce who abolished the slave trade in England. And I'm grateful for what God has done in this country to abolish slavery. I think it's a, a blight that for so many years we had slavery. I'm glad the North won. And that was certainly true in Colossus well. Certainly there were slaves who were treated that way. One historical source of mine said this, Slaves were in a much worse state than cattle whatsoever. They had no head in the state, no name, no title, no register. They were not capable of being injured, nor could they take by purchase. They had no heirs and therefore could make no will. They were not entitled to the rights and considerations of matrimony. They could be sold, transferred, or pawned as goods or personal estate for goods they were, and as such they were esteemed. They might be tortured for evidence, punished at the discretion of their Lord, or even put to death by His authority. 
And then it puts some of Paul's statements here in just an amazing light. Some were bad. But you know what? Not all of it was exactly as bad as it sounds. That wasn't the experience of every Roman slave. I mean, you have half the population. Some of them were treated very well. Some slaves were educated. They were teachers. They were doctors. They were skilled workers, craftsmen, librarians, accountants, builders, tutors, cooks, salesmen. They helped be the middle class of the Roman Empire. Being a slave carried some benefit. Master would feed you, provide for your home and shelter. Uh, you, you might think about a master-slave relationship a little bit like the military. Right? You give of your life. Some people even gave themselves voluntarily to be slaves. Give your life voluntarily. They will feed you, take care of you and everything. But there are some, some um, inconveniences that come upon them as a result of that. And obviously we know of that, the service they do for the country. But there were some benefits. And some chose to remain slaves. Some were permitted to purchase their freedom but chose to say, you know what, things are going well for me right now and I like my master, I like my situation, and many chose to stay in their situation. And another historical source of mine argued this way. He said, while an individual was a slave, he was in most respects equal to his freeborn counterpart in the Greco-Roman world. By the first century A.D., the slave had most of the legal rights which were granted to free men. Many had a considerable amount of money at their disposal, had rights of wife and family. In A.D. 20, a decree of the Senate specified that slave criminals were to be tried in the same way as free men, right? giving rights to slaves. Uh, I read also about how they could have wills and uh, how often there was a social outcry when slaves were unusually cru- when masters were unusually cruel to their slaves. Um, I, I read of one, one instance where they found on a, on a tombstone some inscriptions that spoke very admiringly to the slave that was in their house. They had this familial relationship that was very nice and pleasant. And this source goes on to say, the family, the slave was not inferior to the free man of similar skills in regard to food or clothing. The free labor in New Testament time was seldom in better circumstances than his slave counterpart. That source is like totally opposed to the source I said at the beginning. So, how do you reconcile those? Here's why I reconcile them. I'd say that, that both of them are true. Some slaves had bad, bad circumstances. Terrible, awful, inhumane. Some slaves, however, had it pretty good. Had good jobs, desirable gods, jobs. Some slaves treated very badly. Some slaves treated very well. But regardless of their circumstance, instruction what Paul called them to was to obey their masters. Paul, Paul's counsel was the same as Peter's counsel. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18. He said, Servants, be submissive to your masters all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. So Peter knew full well that there were good circumstances and there were bad circumstances, but the standard was still the same, as is my first point. Verses 22 through 25. Slaves, obey your masters. Slaves, obey your masters. Now, this is difficult for us, okay? First of all, because none of us in this room are slaves. But, you know what? This is what the application of the text is. It's what I want to make my point. You remember when I was preaching on wives and husbands, right? Verse 18. 
My, my message there, my application clear. My point, wives, be subject to your husbands. Right? Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. Verse 20, children, obey your parents. Verse 21, fathers, encourage your children. And, and, and when I was preaching these, I tried to say, okay, I'm going to address just you ladies. I'm just going to address the, the wives among us and those future wives. Remember that? And what did I say about the husbands? I wish you could be gone. And I do the same with the husbands. I, I, I'm preaching to you men who are husbands and maybe you future husbands as well. And the children, I, I preached a children's sermon. You children to obey your parents. And I, I address the new fathers. And today I'd like to address you slaves. Though none of us really are slaves, it's, it's difficult in, in applying. But before you zone out saying, oh, it's not applicable to me because I'm not a slave, I want you to realize that it does have application upon our, our lives. I think that primarily these words here are directly applicable to any who are employed. I think that everything that Paul said here to a slave can directly come over to you as a, an employee. Because I think that whatever was told as a slave was far worse than the situation you're in. I mean, I think about your employment. You have voluntarily entered into an employment agreement with your employer. You have agreed that you will work so many hours, do this particular task, and he in return would give you a paycheck at the end of the week, at the end of the month, every other week, whatever, something like that. Should you grow to be unhappy with your working environment? You're free to quit. Two months notice, a month notice, whatever. You can give your notice and quit at any time. You're free to look for employment anywhere else. If you think you deserve a raise, you are free to go in and talk with your boss and ask for a raise. Equal opportunity laws are available to you to use as is appropriate. You have much protection in the United States. Equal opportunity employment. For slaves in Paul's day, it's much different there were no laws restricting what could and couldn't be done by slaves. No potential for a race. No opportunity for quitting. Working arrangement was probably not your choice. And yet Paul called these slaves, verse 22, to obey. And I guess I would argue that if the slaves of Paul's day were expected to live this way towards their masters in giving them their work and what is due, far more ought we who are in better arrangements give our complete devotion to our bosses or our company or our work in likewise. Because you can always quit. You can always get out of it. If you think, hey, it's, it's disagreeable, even when it's disagreeable, consider how many slaves were in disagreeable circumstance and yet continued to obey. I think it, it applies directly there. And primarily as I seek to apply this, that's where I'm going to seek to apply it directly. But I don't think that the application merely ends there with employee-employer relationships. I think it goes beyond that. And I think particularly like verse 23 is one of those verses that is, um, you know, a big in expanse. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. I think that even comes verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do, it needs to be done with all of your heart. And wherever you are in a situation in which you are a, um, in an authoritative, whatever, submissive relationship, you need to do this to whatever your authority figure is. Whether that's an employee, maybe it's a homemaker, right? maybe it's a student, maybe it's a, a child. 
at home doing chores. Whatever you work you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord. Yes, it's addressed to slaves, but I think it's applicable to all of us in all our work. Whether you're the major breadwinner in the house, whether you're a college student studying your schoolwork, whether you're a child picking up toys in your room in obedience to your mother's voice, whether your mother changing diapers. I think this, this all comes back to the way we ought to work. And so I simply will allow the Spirit to apply this in your hearts, though I will use the phraseology oftentimes here, slaves, because that's who it was written to. I trust that all of you see yourselves as slaves of Christ. As you're slaves of Christ, you are to submit to those authority structures that God has given to us. So I want to look at some ways as we go through this passage how slaves are called to obey. And I trust the Holy Spirit to apply that in your situation. First of all, slaves are to obey completely. Completely. This comes in the first half of verse 22. Paul writes, Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth. I'm picking up this phrase, all things. Paul gives a slave here one choice. He must obey. No wiggle rooms here. He doesn't say obey your masters in some things. Obey your masters in most things. No, what does he say, children? Obey your masters in all things, right? Does that come to mind? You ever heard that before, children? Right? Colossians 3, verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Doesn't mean you, you can um, obey unless you're tired. Doesn't mean that you obey unless what they ask you to do is unreasonable. Doesn't mean you obey only if they're treating you fairly or only if you really like, feel like it or only if you think it's really going to help accomplish your overall task. No, your boss says to do it. You should do it. Your husband, your your parents, children say to do it, you should do it in all things. Right? In fact, the words are identical. Hupakuate katapanta. Obey katapanta. To everything. That's the call here. When someone in authority over us, whether it's a parent or an employer or a teacher or a police officer says something, or a judge in a courtroom, you'd obey it. That's what this is calling us to do. It needs to be only said once because we should obey in all things. And if it's said twice, it means you've disobeyed the first time. So we need to obey in all things. And it has implication here also about the quality of work we do. Right? We do it completely in all things. We perform the work until it's completely done. We finish our tasks. We don't delay in getting it done. Slaves are to obey completely. Slaves are to obey, secondly, sincerely. This is the middle of verse 22. Obey those your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart. The idea here is that the slaves of Paul's day were not to obey whether their master was around to watch them work or not. Their work wasn't merely to be on the surface for everyone to see, right? External surface. External service. Rather, it's to be motivated from within. It's to be done with sincerity, right? It's to be done sincerely. This phrase translated here, external service, right, is uh, literally translating ESV, eye service. It's eye-service. Trying to put these two things together. In the New American Standard, in the footnote, it says eye service, right, cramming these together with no dash. It's like, is eye service a word? It's not. But, you know what, neither was it in Paul's day either. He, he put this, the eyeball service, 
eyeball service kind of put this one word together, just kind of formed this new word. Never been used before until Paul used it. And that's the idea here, right? It's, it's that we shouldn't be eyeball servants. We shouldn't be servants only when uh, our, our master or boss or somebody in authority is, is looking over us. I remember hearing the story of the boss one time who tracked down one of his employees and said, Jones, Jones, how long have you been working here? And Jones said, well, ever since I heard you coming down the hall. That's what he said. That's eyeball service. Eyeball service is like the employee who complained, you know, I'm so nearsighted, I nearly worked myself to death. And a fellow employee said, what What are you talking about? What's being nearsighted got to do with working yourself to death? And he explained, I couldn't tell whether the boss was watching me or not, so I had to work all the time. Well, the boss, God, Paul, God's word to us is calling us to get nearsighted. I mean, go, go in your house and start reading words in fine print in dark places so you get nearsighted so you can't see whether they're looking at you or not so you do work hard all the time. Because God calls us to work hard with a heart that doesn't concern itself with who's looking at us, doesn't need constant supervision, doesn't need constant reminders, right? Which really leads to our next point, right? Slaves are to obey reverently. Right? The very last phrase there of verse 22 Fearing the Lord. A slave's work is to be done. Fearing the Lord. And see, the contrast here is between, well, are you, clearing, are you seeking to please men or are you fearing the Lord? Right? Who are you trying to please? You're trying to please men or, or God? And Paul's calling the slaves in Colossae to work as mindful of the ever present eye of the Lord. Proverbs 15, verse 3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place looking on the evil and the good. So, you know, you can be an eyeball servant when you realize that God's eyeball is always on you. As we do our work reverently for the Lord, we have no need to worry about the eyes of men when others are watching us and when they aren't because we know that God's eyes are always upon us. And I say this, if your actions ever change, When the eyes of others are upon you, it demonstrates you're not living reverently enough. That's what it demonstrates. It demonstrates that you have, uh, you know, become a practical atheist, taken God out of your mind, not realize that God is looking down upon us all the time. And the fear of the Lord isn't taking, if the fear of the Lord isn't taking prominence in your life, you need to really think about that. Work reverently. Slaves are to obey heartily. That's the first half of verse 23. Whatever you do, do your work heartily. Literally, this means from the soul. It means the work of a slave is to be done with an inner motivation that actually desires to obey. And you know the great difference between obeying with a willing heart and an unwilling heart, right? If you say to your children, Hey kids, let's go outside and build a snowman. What happens? Yes! Instant rejoicing. They're off like a dart to go get their their coats and get their mittens and get their gloves. And they're running to get the the shovels and things so they can pile it on and getting a carrot for the nose and getting a, a stocking cap. And they're all going, right? But if you ask those same children, children, 
let's go outside and shovel the snow off the driveway. What do you get? Oh, it's too cold outside. Oh, I'm so tired. My stomach hurts. I'm hungry. Oh, my nose is running. <laughs> Comes back to the heart. When the feet, when the heart is willing, the feet are swift, right? And that's what we're being called to here, right? When we look at the work before us, whoever's told us to do that, we should do our work heartily. Right? Filled with a ready heart that's not filled with complaining and bickering and arguing and complaining. Right? That just wants to, to go after it. Slaves are to obey completely, sincerely, reverently, heartily. Last half, verse 23, devotionally. I'm just picking this. Do your work heartily. Ask for the Lord rather than for men. Right? Do so right, in devotion to the Lord. You know, it's not so much the slaves of Paul's day weren't supposed to serve their masters. They were. But it's that they were looked to, to look beyond their masters to their ultimate master. In fact, the word master, here used in verse 22, used in chapter 4, verse 1, is the word kurios, which is Lord, which is used throughout all the Bible for Lord. And so what this is saying is that you have a Lord in heaven, so obey your Lord here upon earth. And Paul's instruction to slaves is to demonstrate for the world to see of how following the Lord makes an impact upon following their lords. If I would ask you this morning, who's your boss? What would you say? Who's your boss? Every single one of you. Who's your boss? Right? For those of you who are employed, certainly you can say, well, my boss. The one at work is my boss. Children? You might well say, you know what, my, my parents are my boss. And, uh, or you might say, my teacher at school is a boss. Wives, in some sense, you can say, my, my husband's my boss. I labor for him. But in a very real sense, you should say this. You say, Jesus is my boss. Because he is really ultimately the, the Lord beyond your Lord, whoever you obey or submit to in whatever particular circumstance you're in. In fact, notice in verse 24, it's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Jesus is our Lord. We are all slaves of Christ as believers in Him. And we will do what He tells us to. So do your work devotionally as a devoted follower of Christ. right? And in this sense, listen, all of our work actually then becomes worship to God is what it does. To obey our authorities is to obey our Lord. Matthew Henry said, We are really doing our duty to God when we are faithful to our duty to men. And this will redeem your work that's set before you tomorrow. Well, slaves are to obey completely, sincerely, reverently, heartily, devotionally. And here it is, verse 24, expectantly. It's right there. Knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of your inheritance. Right, Paul's telling these slaves, listen, who had, who had nothing to look forward to in this life, to look forward to their ultimate reward, their inheritance. The only inheritance that they could anticipate was a heavenly one, which will be given to all believers someday. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 12, I trust you remember, Paul already mentioned this inheritance, that we ought to be giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us 
to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So the God the Father has qualified us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? Wiping all our sins away, nailing it to the cross, allowing us to enter free into the inheritance of, of heaven. All that Jesus owns is, is ours because we're fellow heirs with Christ. And that inheritance is far larger than you might ever think. And you know, and it's it's an easy concept to understand what he's talking about here in verse 24. About looking towards, expecting this inheritance. Right? We understand it here on earth all the time. Proverbs 16, 26, a worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. The, the paycheck at the end of the week encourages the tired employer on Friday morning, employee on Friday morning, then to, to work through the rest of the day because the paycheck and and rest is coming. You ever offer a few dollars to your kids? And bam, they're off because they understand of what's coming. Suppose I gave you the deal. I'll tell you what, if you work really hard for the next for the next hour, I'll give you a year's salary and opportunity to spend that next year anywhere you want. Hawaii, cruises, Colorado skiing, ranch, whatever you want. You just got to work for one hour. Could you do that? (laughs) Our life, the Bible says, is a vapor. (sighs) You go outside, (sighs) it's gone. Our life, I'm telling you, will be over like that. God's calling us to work hard. Calling us to work hard. We receive the inheritance. It's appropriate. Pearly gates, golden streets, presence of the Lord, far more glorious than any cruise or Hawaii or skiing experience you'll ever have. We ought to work expectantly. Finally, slaves are to obey. We ought to work prudently. That's verse 25. He who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. You know, Christians always live with this understanding the Lord will deal properly with every single sin we commit, as well as every single sin that's committed against us. God is going to straighten all that out someday. We don't have to worry about justifying and um, avenging what other people would do to us. Right? And this gave great comfort, I think, to the slaves who were being harshly treated by their masters. They could endure the ill treatment because they knew that they had their eye on Judgment Day when God would deal out retribution to those who didn't know God. God says, vengeance is mine and I will repay they could trust that God was going to right every wrong in that day. And that if they endured under harsh, terrible circumstances, rightly, that that would find favor with God. There would be a reward for them. <clears throat> it's how Peter reasoned. Peter said, 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20, This finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what's right and suffer for it and patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And so the slave, who was in difficult circumstances, still submitted to his master, still obeyed, he knew full well that God would deal with it in the end. God would make it right. But there's another purpose behind these words. It's the words of, of warning. To the slave, he proved himself to be rebellious toward his master. 
the truths of 22 through 24 to be taken seriously. We do well to take them seriously. Listen, God hates rebellion to authority. He hates it. He loves rightful submission and He'll exalt those who humbly submit themselves to the Lord's plan. And so I exhort you, church family, to the extent that you find yourself in submission, whether it's at work, whether it's at school, with children, whether it's at home, I simply encourage you, exhort you to obey, obey completely, sincerely, reverently, heartily, devotionally, expectantly, and prudently. Well, we have only a few minutes left on chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to try to do it real fast. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Masters, deal justly and fairly with your slaves. Justly and fairly with your slaves. Right Now these, just kind of flipping the table. Right, We've been looking at the subordinates and now we look at the those in authority. Masters. Right, It has direct application to those of you who are bosses. Those of you who have... Um, People under you has direct application even to you parents who have children under you. You're in a position of authority. has direct application, I think by implication, to about any type of authority position you're in. And the exhortation here is simply this, that never abuse your position of authority by unfair, unjust actions toward others. A Christian slave owner should treat his slaves with justice and fairness. Philemon's slaves should have been the the best treated of any slaves. Free men should have wanted to be his slaves. And within here, particularly though, it says justly and fairly. There's no room for partiality with those in authority. No room for showing favoritism. And I'll tell you this, nothing discourages the people of this world more than when authority figures show partiality to their subjects. Nothing discourages them more. Children hate it when parents have a favorite child. Students rise in rebellion against the teacher's pet, right? Workers hate it when bosses give preferential treatment. You know, I remember a a time in which I received some preferential treatment. I was shown some favoritism. It was very difficult for me. Many of you know I I worked in the computer department of a hospital before I became a pastor. My my father was a surgeon at the hospital, helped give me an in with the administration. and, And shortly... Shortly after I was working there, I'm not sure, would have been a month and a half, two months, the president of the hospital read an article about a clinic in Arizona that's completely paperless. He said, wow. And this is when 1995, maybe, I don't know, 1996. In fact, Yvonne was cutting my hair last night. I was reading some computer magazine talking about, um, in 2002, wireless hotspots was like, that was like far out technology. Like now, today, everybody's there. And so for then, back then, 1996, like a, a computer record only, that was, that was like way out there. And so my, the president of our um, organization, right, understanding all these records were computerized, the billing and also patient data and care notes. The president said, this is a wonderful idea. Let's go and visit the clinic. The president, my boss, my dad and me, let's, let's just go. And um, I was kind of chosen a little bit because my dad was in there and um, I was shown favoritism. And my boss knew that. And uh, he said, why why don't you just keep this trip quiet for a while? A a business trip to Arizona, I'm supposed to keep quiet before everybody. And that's not a problem. But but there came a time, the week before I was going to go, I said, "Um, 
I'm, I'm not going to be here at the end of the week, guys, because I'm going to Arizona with um, the president and with um, my dad and with uh, my boss. And, and it will put me in a very difficult situation because I was seeking at that point even to establish credibility based upon my qualifications, based upon my working hard. And uh, it, it hurt. It was hard. And it was difficult for me. And so bosses... Those in authority, you will place undue difficulty both on the one you show favoritism to as well as upon these others in your department or in your home against whom um, they aren't showed favorite. So masters, treat your slaves justly and, and fairly. So if you're in a position of authority, whether you're a boss, a teacher, a police officer, a leader of some organization, don't abuse your authority. And, and really the key to this is, all, is, is right here. Knowing that you too have a Lord in heaven. You too have a master in heaven. You know, none of us are ever out of the authority of, of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we serve. We are under Him. We understand how we want Him to deal graciously with us and we need to deal graciously with others who are under our authority. In fact, notice the prominence of the Lord here in this passage. 22, we should work fearing the Lord. Verse 23, work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive reward. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. And here it is, knowing that you too have a Lord in heaven. And so I just say that those of you who are in a position of authority, realize you're standing before the ultimate authority and um, live rightly before them. So let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us this day to take these words Apply them deep into our heart. We be those who trust you and merely obey what your word tells us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing about that today, just in response to the message. Um, Turn to 571. We're going to sing trust and obey together. Let's stand as we do this.